This morning we have the great privilege of turning to the Holy Scriptures together and setting our mind and meditations upon the end of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 13. If you have your Bible with you today, would you turn there with me and in a moment we'll read the first nine verses, Hebrews 13, 1 through 9. The title of this morning's message is Reverent Living. Reverent Living. The title I gathered from two verses that precede Hebrews 13, 12, 28, and 29. Our author records these words, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There is this acceptable worship that is characterized by reverence and awe and is motivated by gratefulness, having received the benefits of salvation described as the kingdom that cannot be shaken in these verses. And then in chapter 13, it continues with application. In other words, what is reverent and awe-inspired and gratefulness-inspired living look like for the church of Jesus Christ? Hebrews 13, 1-9 answers that question in part. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to present a call to worship for all of life. To present a call to worship for all of life. In other words, it is the operating assumption. I submit to you today that the author of Hebrews considers all of life, that is, all of true Christian living an act of worship, reverent living, awe-inspired, and gratefulness-inspired living for every area of our life now, having received the benefits of our salvation. So with that introduction, would you stand with me out of reverence and awe for the Holy Word of God, and let us consider these verses together. I'm reading to you again from Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Here we have the Holy Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Our author today in Hebrews follows the apostolic pattern of laying out detailed instruction in the doctrine of the faith, followed by an exhortation, exhorting the practice, that is, that the faith demands. This is a pattern that should be familiar to you if you've gone through the book of Romans, for instance. 
the author of Hebrews shifts gears towards application in chapter 13. And this recalls the structure of Romans where Paul calls the church to the obedience of the faith in chapter 12 of his great book. You may recall, having expounded in the first 11 chapters the great glories of salvation and reaching this doxological crescendo, if you will, these worshipful words in verse 36 of Romans 11, for of him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Having blown us away with this glorious, unparalleled, peerless treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the next words shift to application in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, in other words, because of this glorious gospel, you ought to live differently. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God expounded in chapters 1 through 11, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, there's this call to worship for all of life, having realized the value, both its precision and power, of our great salvation. He goes on, verse 2, in similar language to our text today, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is, the good, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Back to the introduction to our text today. We see this structure in Romans where Paul calls the church to obedience of the faith in chapter 12 following uh, following his presentation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to remember in the case of Hebrews and in Romans that these practical imperatives, you know, therefore live in this way, they are intentionally prefaced by much more material proclaiming the beauties of our redemption and the glories of our sovereign God. This is by design. The lifestyle of the believer rightly flows from our appreciation of the and powerful truths of our salvation. Meditate on the gospel and then live the gospel is the pattern of Romans, the pattern of Hebrews. The major applica application portion of both of these books, therefore, is bracketed, especially in the case of Hebrews here, by a call to acceptable worship. Notice back in Hebrews 11.28 how the author adjures us. He says in 28b, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then we see after he's made some applications, he reiterates this call to worship for all of life, as it were in verse 16 of chapter 13. He says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The verse before it is similar. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So for the author of Hebrews, acceptable worship is the fruit of the lips that give praise to him as we have done today. It's also the confession of faith in the gospel which he has so faithfully and exhaustively proclaimed, but it is indeed more. The worship, the acceptable worship, and the sacrifices that are pleasing to God include doing good and sharing what we have, even the gift, as it were, of hospitality that he expounds in 13 verses 1 through 4, for instance. These kinds of sacrifices, 
lived out of joyful overflow of gratitude, reverence, and awe for the great gospel, our acceptable worship to our Lord. Hebrews 13 is a classic example, therefore, of the third use of the law. Let me refresh your memory with a systematic theological point by asking you this question, and I'll give you the answer. What are the three uses of the law? These are helpful distinctions that we see over and again in Scripture. When Scripture employs the law of God, it does so, I submit to you, and men who are much more apt to study and come to conclusions that the Word of God have made this point all from Reformation onward. So the use of the law in Scripture falls into one of, invariably into one of three categories. First use of the law, mirror. You can think of a mirror, a looking glass. It's to show us our sin. Paul, sa- Paul says, as much in the book of Romans, without the law, I would not have known my sin, he says in so many words. First use of the law. Second use, a curb, some have called it. That's like a barrier or a guardrail, a fence, as it were. And this use of the law is often called the civic use of the law. There is such a thing as biblical and right commands for society. And these provide a restraint from the course of evil. So second use is curb. The third use is unique to Christian living. And that's the use that is under our consideration today, often called a guide. To reveal what is pleasing to the Lord. Or in other words, to answer this question that Schaefer so aptly put it years ago. How then shall we live? If Christ has done this amazing work in our lives and in the course of redemptive history to accomplish our salvation, how do we express the overflowing gratitude, the reverence and awe that ought to attend the knowledge and the value of that great salvation? How ought we express it? Third use of the law, a guide to reveal what is pleasing to the Lord, a vision for worship, if you will. The author of Hebrews draws from both tables of the law. We think of the law, the Ten Commandments in two tables. The first, vertical, expressing our relationship to the Lord. The second, horizontal, expressing our relationship to one another. The author of Hebrews draws from both of these tables examples of how to express our gratefulness in pleasing ways to God for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What an amazing gift we have received. Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We seek a city that is to come. We have no lasting city here. No one does, in fact. Anyone who places all their hope and investment in what this world promises will be grossly disappointed on the final day. Hell eternal awaits all who invest all their hope and all their affections, and all of their joy in what perishes with using in this life, we have something greater. Something that no one, no government, no pile of riches in this world could ever promise or procure. We have an unshakable kingdom. We have a city that is to come. We have reconciliation and perfect communion with the holy God and a restoration. The Greek, it's parangenesia, as I recall. A redeemed earth to look forward to. A new heavens and new earth with full restored communion and full consummation of the glorious relationship. Redeemed man with a holy God. How do we express our overflowing joy when we contemplate the reality of our future? Well, the answer is given to us in part with some examples in Hebrews 13. 
So let us consider three categories. Here's a heading, acceptable worship regarding three categories. Number one, relationships. Number two, resources. And number three, regulations. Under regulations, you could also use the terms ecclesiology and doctrine. Acceptable worship regarding relationships. Our author begins to expound, I submit to you in Hebrews 13, 1 through 4. Consider our text today. And keep that term or that heading relationships in mind. The author of Hebrews proclaims, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Another relationship is detailed, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Acceptable worship regarding relationships, laid out with three examples, strangers, prisoners, and marriage. You could call these test cases for brotherly love. That term brotherly love in the Greek is Philadelphia. Of course, there's a city in our nation named after that term. The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. What's the idea there? There is a new relationship that is forged in the blood of Jesus Christ between all who confess Him, Jesus, as their Savior and Lord. The author of Hebrews has, ex- has expounded this in part already. Recall to your attention earlier language that illustrates the family terms that describe our new state, our new relationship with the Lord. In Hebrews 2.16, for instance, our author expounds, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So we are the spiritual children of Abraham, who was the father of the faith. So we begin to see these family connections laid out to describe the brotherly love-like relationship we have with one another as believers. But it goes further than that. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. Who is he speaking of here? Jesus Christ himself. Who are the brothers of Jesus Christ? If you are a believer in this room. If you are in Christ. Do you realize that you are not only a brother or a sister. With a man or woman who is in Christ sitting next to you. But you are a brother of Jesus Christ himself. According to Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Christ Jesus our Lord took on flesh, he entered into what a would-be family relationship to all of the redeemed. And so we see then, in Hebrews 13:1, when our author exhorts us, let brotherly love continue, we see that this is a brotherhood that is significant and powerful indeed. My grandpa is 95 years old, and he was a night fighter in World War II. He fought uh, in the dark when, you know, compared to today's technology, airplanes and instruments were very primitive. With a prop plane and basic radar, He would be up in the air over the oceans around Japan chasing down Jap Zeros. 
He was about 19 or 20 at the time. We're talking like 75 years ago now. Well, my Aunt Sue was telling me a couple weeks ago that my grandpa got the opportunity to touch base with one of his comrades in arms from three, you know, three quarters of a century ago. Arsenal, that's his name, right? I remember hearing stories about Arsenal growing up. Well, these men met under extreme conditions, fighting airplanes in the sky over Okinawa in World War II 75-some years ago. And they just got reconnected via Skype, and there was an immediate connection. They were like brothers. Why? Because they had a shared, intense, profound, life-altering experience that the two of them participated in together. And that bond of fighting together under those extreme conditions created such a union between the two of them that it is still strong enough to give them energy as 95-year-old, very old, very aging men to make that effort to talk about the old days and to relate on that level and to remember with crystal clear recall those starry nights over that nation, you know, a half a globe away under the intense battle situation of World War II on the Eastern Front. That's just an illustration of a temporal and passing and partial union of brotherhood that can be formed under extreme circumstances. So the lesson then, given an illustration like that, is how much more ought the connection between believers be forged when we consider the union that we have in Christ and therefore to each other. When Christ delivered us from our sin, it was a greater battle campaign by eternal measures of magnitude than any victory claimed in World War II. Eternity itself hinged upon the event of Christ's crucifixion on Calvary for the salvation of our souls. Do you not think that that event in redemptive history can form a brotherly bond that is absolutely definitive for our lives and unbreakable when we consider its weight? Absolutely. So in light of the powerful bond of Christ Jesus saving us from our sins and unifying himself for a church at the expense of the bodily fluids that poured forth from his veins on Calvary, how then shall we live? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. A relationship, a test case for strangers is in view. We recall, of course, Genesis 18, 1 through 20. We won't go there this morning, but you'll remember Abraham welcomed strangers to him. But in so doing, he welcomed a theophany. He welcomed a Christophany, perhaps Christ himself, revealing himself to him in the flesh a pre-incarnation revelation of God himself along with two angels visited Abraham and it was because Abraham had hospitality and love that he received that visitation, welcomed those men. He was promised, of course, a son and he was also visited uh, by these men with instructions about Lot's plight in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot himself welcomed strangers and by his hospitality, actually was delivered from the destruction of those cities. 
Rahab is listed in Hebrews 11. She showed hospitality to the, those uh, Jewish spies who came in to check out if Jeric, uh, the city of Jericho and the surrounding area and so on. And she hid them, and she was the only one rescued when that city was destroyed. Clement was an early church father. He exhorted his congregation and other churches. He said, consider those three examples. Because of Abraham's hospitality, he received the promise that he would bear a son, the lineage of the Messiah, who would one day father multi-generationally Jesus Christ himself. Consider the hospitality of Lot, who welcomed in and thus received deliverance from the destruction of that city. And thirdly, Rahab, who was rescued from the utter collapse of Jericho. These are pictures in Scripture where following the Lord's word and taking seriously the bond that he establishes with himself and between his people actually earned great deliverance and great promises. And so, by these examples and by the power of our bond between us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the exhortation in Hebrews 13 is to let that Philadelphia that brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The next test case for relationships is prisoners. Acceptable worship regarding relationships as it relates to those believers especially that we have not known yet, but we reach out because we know that we've had the same experience in Christ. Secondly, prisoners, those who are experiencing currently hardship as a result of their confession of faith. Verse 3, Hebrews 13. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. That phrase is a little um, interesting and a little cryptic at first glance, perhaps. Uh, you also are in the body. Um, so the, it, it's an appeal for this reason. Since you are also in the body, don't forget those who are in prison. Think of it this way. Uh, since you put yourself in their shoes would perhaps be a contemporary phrase. You know what it's like to be a human being, to suffer. You have a body given to the pains of life and, and mortality, just as your comrades in arms, your brothers in Christ also have a body. Their body is in prison right now, experiencing hardship and suffering, perhaps beatings and torture for the name of Christ. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine what that would feel like, and now let that brotherly love overflow with, interact, with, with your interaction to them, visiting them in prison, praying for them, supporting them, doing what you can to intercede on their behalf. In rousing their attention, the, Hebrews, uh, the uh, hearers of Hebrews, the re recipients of this letter to these things, he's recalling some faithfulness of their former days, they were commended earlier in the book for this very thing you may recall in chapter 10. Again, the author of Hebrews says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is that better possession and abiding one? 
Well, he's referenced it again in Hebrews 12. We've, we've said this already. It's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's that city that is to come. So in other words, when you remember the riches that we have in Christ that transcend, that are promised beyond this life, then you can have grace to endure risking your life for the gospel right now. These people had no regard when they were walking in the Spirit, if you will. They had no regard for their own personal property. They were risking their very possessions, their well-being in this life to be associated, to intervene, to intercede, to help, and to support those who are struggling with sufferings, with paying the high cost that is sometimes required for confessing the faith, for those who are imprisoned because of their association with Jesus Christ as members of this new way that was taking, turning the world upside down and, and uh, rattling so many cages in the early days of Christianity. Do not be afraid of prison is the admonition to the hearers of Hebrews. Are we afraid of prison? You know, in our day, it seems kind of a far-fetched idea sometimes, other times maybe not so much, that we could end up in prison merely for what we believe. But I submit to you, if present trends continue in our culture, there is a very high likelihood that history and the application, therefore, of these texts from Scripture will apply much more directly than perhaps it has in recent American past. If we continue as a nation, presuming, for instance, that the height of civic virtue is championing the cause of any marginalized group without regard to an absolute standard of morality, it is only a matter of time when to fail to do so will be a crime. This is a thesis I've been working on for a long time in my head. <laughs> we see these movements in culture where the highest civic virtue, so popularly proclaimed in media and culture, the highest virtue, it seems, is to champion the cause of a marginalized group. Sometimes in the past, there were marginalized groups where their cause was just. And so to champion that cause was a good thing. You think of a group that is segregated merely because of their skin color comes to mind. But we live in a day now where any marginalized group, without reference to an absolute standard of morality, it's, their cause becomes a new civic virtue to champion. So aberrant sexual behavior and perverse notions and lifestyles of every imaginable kind. Self-identity with any one of, you know, 70 plus genders or what have you, or different things that the Bible calls absolutely rehensible to our Lord. They're now becoming the new civic virtue that all who are, are, who are pious by our world standards will champion. And, and my point is, if this continues, it will only be a matter of time where not championing those things will be a crime. And you may have to go to jail if you disagree and say so on the ground of the Word of God with whatever the cause du jour is just now, like transgenderism or something of that nature. So if this happens, where will we turn for support? 
What will we do if your pastor, what will you do if your pastor has to go to jail one day because someone takes a record of my sermon, turns it into the authorities, and the Supreme Court has this new ruling that renders it hate speech to call out transgenderism, of, you know, chasing that lifestyle as a virtue, as sin. What will you do? Will you visit me in prison, you know? That's kind of the idea of a, of a possible application that was a real situation at the time that this was written. We may never get to that place. But let me emphasize that if we do, the word of God is absolutely sufficient. And the cause of Jesus Christ is worth going to prison for. And not only that, the cause of Jesus Christ is worth risking being imprisoned because you visit one of your brothers in Christ behind those bars. So it's a test case for acceptable worship. Will you follow the Lord at the cost of prison? And finally, a test case for acceptable worship regarding relationships is marriage. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So reverent living means living out your marriage and holding marriage honorable whether you are single or married. Notice it says, let marriage be held honorable among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Look even closer, there's two categories of sin, sexual immorality and adultery. This covers the whole gamut. Those who are not married, if they do not hold marriage honorable, they will commit things like fornication and think it's just fine. But this is, according to the Bible, sexual immorality. It does not hold the marriage covenant and the distinct parameters of that relationship honorable, but violates them and justifies it on some other of man's preferences or laws. But also, adultery is in view here. That would be, of course, breaking the bonds of marriage from within. So whether you are without, outside of marriage, an unmarried person, or a married person, the charge is, is that reverent living holds marriage sacred no matter who you are. To not do so is to be like Esau. In Hebrews 11, or 12, excuse me, we see this point driven home in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then as an example of defilement, he continues in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Why is marriage so important to the Lord? There are many reasons, many biblical reasons to answer that question, but let me just emphasize three. First of all, the created order itself. Honoring marriage is, to honor marriage is to honor God's very design and intent for creation and its orderliness. God created man and he created woman. Therefore, Jesus himself says, let the two become one flesh and what God has put together, let no man separate. And we can add by implication, let no man redefine, let no man violate. 
let no man treat as rubbish or insignificant or old-fashioned or out of date or restricted in any, any of these things. You know, today marriage is in a sorry state indeed. Statisticians tell us that whether you claim Christ or not, there is a nearly 50% probability that your marriage will end in divorce, which leaves open the question how many are healthy that remain hanging together by a thread. Marriage, generally speaking, as an institution, has fallen upon hard times in our day, but brothers and sisters, because it is a creation ordinance, and because it is part and parcel of God's created order, we uh, disparage it at our own peril. The chickens have come home to roost, as it were. We are reaping the whirlwind. This kind of hashtag Me Too campaign, I'm sure you're familiar if you watch the news at all. What is it? It's a popular social media movement to claim solidarity with the sexually violated and abused. That hashtag MeToo movement would not exist if marriage was held honorable in our culture. But because it is not, there is claims and violators and perverts coming out of the woodwork in every nook and cranny, crevice and corner, and in the broad daylight of our culture. And I even heard of an app that you can download on your phone to, get, to make sure you have consent with your partner that you want to shack up with for a one-night stand or something like this or that. Do you think an app on your phone is going to allow you lit, to live lawlessly without regard to marriage and reap no consequences? Absolutely not. Our nation has fallen apart because the most central institutions have been thrown to the wind, remaking them in the image of our wickedness and ungodliness. And so we are starting to regret these decisions as a culture, but until we return to the admonition of reverent living from Hebrews 13, there is no peace to be found, no real reconstruction, no real hope for God's purposes even in our temporal relationships. The answer is, is to let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage is part of the created order. Secondly, marriage is important. It is the, within the context of marriage and family relationships, Christ himself was born of a virgin and was raised by a man and wife. Jesus himself came into this world and was raised during his formative years in his humanity in a godly home. In a marriage between Mary and Joseph, this is significant. What if Mary and Joseph had not held marriage as honorable? Well, how would that have affected Jesus Christ? Thank God they did. They loved the Lord and his word. They were faithful believers. They held their marriage as honorable before the Lord. And therefore, Christ himself was raised in a covenanted home where husband and wife honored God's terms and our Lord entered this world through this relationship in part as we see his upbringing in this context thirdly marriage is important in ephesians 5 it is a gospel analogy paul says the mystery is significant therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife the two shall become flesh this mystery is profound and i am saying that it refers to christ and the church 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So to the degree that your marriage is healthy, husbands and wives in this room, is the degree that you testify to the gospel and to the relationship of Jesus Christ to his bride and vice versa. And so marriage is a test case for reverent living. How is your marriage doing? Have you considered its significance? Second major point this morning, acceptable worship regarding resources. We won't spend as much time on this point, but it is eminently applicable in our day, just as it was at the time these words were written. Hebrews 13, 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Be content with what you have. Uh, Paul expounds on this idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a perfect cross-reference. He, Paul, although was a very capable individual, and if he had continued on his original course of life, would likely have been financially well-off, even as he enjoyed prominence because of his scholarly abilities and so on. He laid all these things aside, as Philippians tells us, counted them but rubbish that he might gain Christ. But even embracing this life of at times being utterly poor and experiencing the privation, the cost of taking up his cross and following the Lord, he nevertheless was content. 1 Timothy 6.6 6, There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Going back to Hebrews 13, when our author admonishes to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, you see an example of this and the way Paul lived out his own life. May I suggest that contentment is the result of love properly placed. That is, on people, ultimately on the Lord, but on the brotherly love as well between believers and not on things. Contentment is the result of love properly placed. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Whereas if we place our love on things, on our financial well-being, on wealth, on our own uh, personal gain, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Where do your affections terminate? What gives you the most joy? This week in family devotions, I asked the kids, what are some things, or finish this sentence. Some, some people say I'm awesome because, and uh, they answered, I have a lot of money. I have a nice house. I'm awesome because I drive a nice car. I'm awesome because I have a lot of power and influence. Some examples of their answers, and all of which we see around us. 
We are called to shun this kind of pursuit of identity, to find comfort and contentment and let, let our love and our peace rest upon things. We are a different sort of people than those who have invested only in this life. We are a sort of people that look forward again to that city that is to come, whose builder and maker is God, to a kingdom that is unshakable. We are not called to have our contentment tied to things that a bank account could wipe away or a stock market collapse could remove or fire could destroy or thieves could steal or moth and rust could corrupt. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So this idea of contentment is absolutely central to reverent living acceptable worship, to be content with the costs of following Christ, even if it means losing things of this world, only to gain assurance and, and the hope of that unshakable kingdom to come. Of course, in Matthew's gospel, there are numerous references that no doubt are in the back of the author's mind as he writes. In Matthew chapter 6, for instance, uh, there are several places where this principle is expounded in our Lord's words in the great Sermon on the Mount. I believe verse 10 or uh, uh, Matthew 6:33 might be one of those points that come to mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious of itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our, uh, the, uh, Jesus, as he's proclaiming these words, he says that there is an anxiety that plagues the hearts of the Gentiles. That would be the unbelievers, those who are a different sort of people than us. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But faith and contentment, reverent living, recognizes that we, our hope, our peace, our joy, our contentment rests not on things, but on the things that will last beyond this life. Now there are two passages, two citations that are tied to this acceptable worship regarding resources that our author refers to. The first is in verse 5. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This citation comes from Joshua chapter 1. So you recall the context. Moses, the servant of the Lord, has died. Joshua, his one-time assistant, is now called to lead God's people. Moses, my servant, is dead, is the message from the Lord to Joshua, his servant. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand nor to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It goes on to say, if you do this, you'll be prosperous and have great success. Can we relate to Joshua? Yes, we can. Remember, the third use of the law is in view here. Remember this guide, this vision for acceptable worship, for reverent living, and meditate on the things that the Lord has commanded. Keep marriage honorable. Show hospitality and brotherly love to fellow believers. Remember that knowing Jesus Christ is worth the destruction of your, of your body, even prison, if that's the cost account. The reward of the future is worth it. Be content with those things and not with the promises that filthy lucre, riches that pass with the using promise. And as you do so, the promise is that even though God has called you to a task that is above, way above and beyond your ability, that He will come through. Be strong and courageous. Just like Joshua was called to have faith in the future a promised place of rest after all the enemies were conquered but would be established in the land, so we are called to have faith that Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is subduing all his enemies, putting them under his feet, and one day this promised land campaign for the new heavens and new earth will be absolutely, utterly successful. Be strong and courageous. Step forward in the battles that God has prepared you for, knowing that he has promised, just like he did to his servant Joshua, who is a type of what was to come, that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. This is why our author refers to these pictures of old, highly versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that that association with Joshua's experience would have immediate application to the challenge of fighting the spiritual battles that his readers were called to face. And so it is with us. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. <clears throat> the second citation comes from a number of references in the Psalms. Twice in Psalm 56, I believe maybe one in 57, also Psalm 118. He says in Hebrews 13, 6, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And this is, of course, a statement of faith that simply puts a finer point and even more emphatic emphasis <clears throat> on the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the biblical promises that no weapon formed against God's purposes through His people will ultimately prosper. God is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the call is acceptable worship regarding a physical lack, lack in resources, maybe poverty of our experience can be endured when we remember that our contentment does not rest in things, but things that last beyond this life. And if we put faith in those things, 
then we can live as rich people looking forward to a promised land with an absolute certainty that we will conquer, even if we don't have two pennies to rub together in the meantime. Finally, and in closing this morning, regulations, acceptable worship regarding the proclamation of doctrine and the structure of the church, if you will, verses 7 through 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. There are apostolic examples that had gone before in the bringing of the Word of God. We've referenced in Nahum, in Isaiah 52, and Romans chapter 10 recently, that picture of the beautiful feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who publish peace, who bring the gospel, the good news, upon the mountains. And this message <coughs> and this truth throughout Scripture, whether it was from the prophets of old, Nahum, Isaiah, or from the mouth of the apostles, or those who continue to echo their message, even you and I today, nevertheless stands. The call was to remember those who first brought the gospel to this early church. Remember your leaders. Presumably they had passed on at this point. Those who spoke to you the word of God, thus the past tense. Consider, first of all, that they brought to you the good news, the gospel, the message of absolute truth, the Word of God. Consider, secondly, the outcome of their way of life, the fruit of that Word working its way out in their reverent living. In other words, this church had been blessed by examples of acceptable worship in the apostolic example, if you will, of their original leaders, those who went out to plant this church, who proclaimed the Word, and lived in light of its truth. Perhaps uh, servants of the Lord who had laid aside promising careers and the accolades of their peers to take this missionary journey, raising funds and risking their life to bring the gospel to a new collection called out from the pagan world of church members. Consider that example. Don't forget. That's a valuable testimony that you have. We have that testimony, brothers and sisters. Consider the way of life and the diligence of Paul himself, a prisoner for your sake and for mine. Paul was laboring for the future church when he wrote letters, even when he was in prison. Those who were not afraid to visit him in prison, but brought him the papyruses and so on, the scrolls, the things that he needed, the writing utensils and carried his message to and from, they were serving us. Consider those leaders who spoke the word of God right from the very beginning and the outcome of their way of life, even as that testimony is echoed through church history and be encouraged by that example. Secondly, all of this is based on the foundational notion, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the constant testimony of Hebrews. The surety, the immovability, and if you will, the perpetual relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Same God speaking, same message, different means. Says, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, of course, speaking of Christ, through whom also He created the world. Same Christ created the world. Same Christ proclaimed through the apostles, the fathers, the prophets of old. Same Christ proclaiming from his own mouth in the incarnation the message of the gospel. And this Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word is power. Then, now, and forever. Absolute certainty, eternal, perpetual relevance. The Christ of Scripture proclaimed of old, revealed in time, and interpreted and applied through the ministry of the apostles is absolutely as relevant this day as he was at any other point in redemptive history. These days, many people claim Christ, but it's a Christ in their own image. I think I've said it before like this. A lot of people claim Christ as the mascot for their pet worldview. Oh, they see Christ as the person to represent what they think he ought to be or what they think ought to, uh, is the truth. But in fact, in every one of these cases, if it is not the Christ of Scripture, it is no Christ at all. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no new improved Christ. Christ is not a metaphor for a bigger and better idea. He is not a philosophical a truism. He is not a concept that is sprung out of whole cloth, out of some literary tra a tradition in the West. <clears throat> he is not the guru for the ultimate self-help message. He is not <clears throat> an interesting figure in history that we could emulate in part. If we want success in the now, he is none of these things. All of these things blasphemously sell short the reality of Christ's perpetual relevance as the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity who was and is and is forevermore the same yesterday, today, and forever. In closing this morning and in transition to communion, <clears throat> there is a warning for us. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. <clears throat> Take that word foods and substitute anything less than grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by modern ideals which have not benefited those devoted to them. Not by legalistic forms, which was the case in this day. You know, special foods or eating or not eating that people judged themselves holy by or thought they could earn their salvation by, liturgical practices and the like that were holdovers from their uh, bad theology. Not by the false teachers of our day that promise health, wealth, and prosperity as a formula for self-help if you simply uh, practice what they do and uh, receive, you know, uh, rock star parking at Walmart if you simply confess and have faith. No, none of these things have benefited those who've devoted to them. They're just convenient smokescreens and deception to delude people 
<clears throat> to lead them away from Christ and straight to hell if the devil will have his way. Instead, the message to the church then and now is, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. If we feel like we fall short in reverent living, and I'm sure you along with me can confess many areas where my relationships, your relationships, our uh, relationship to our resources is, or our uh, thoughts of the importance of church, the church and uh, the words and the means that God supplies and so on, that we have fallen short. If we are weak in any of these areas, the call is to be strengthened by grace. It's interesting today that we have a contrasting source in food that is represented. We have food before us today. But this food is different than the food referenced here, which did not benefit those devoted to them. This food is representative of grace itself. Grace embodied in Jesus Christ. Here in these elements at the communion table, at the Lord's table today, is represented His broken body and His shed blood. As you take, if you're a believer, and only if you're a believer in this room, you are welcome at the Lord's table in moments, but as you partake in these elements, remember what they represent and be strengthened by that grace because of Christ's broken body, and because of His shed blood, you are enabled to live with gratefulness, reverence, and fear, and to grow in your acceptable worship as your relationships and your whole life, in fact, and, and all of these things we've talked about today come into increasing conformity to the Lord and His Word. I beg you to remember that as we transition to the Lord's table today. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to consult your holy word. I pray insofar as it has been accurately represented by the preacher this day, that you would write those truths on the table of our heart and bring them to the forefront of our mind as we partake in this meal today. Impress upon our souls the great formative moments of the gospel that sealed in the blood of the only God-man, our salvation, that formed that unbreakable union and bond of reconciliation with the Holy God and those who trust in your blood as salvation and the brotherhood of all who share in that experience together. May we grow in our understanding and our appreciation and the application of these truths as a result of this word preached and this meal this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.